So as we come to chapter 16, we're really on Samson part two. We had Samson part one two weeks ago before I went to Florida last week. And we have Samson part two tonight. And now we have really the final chapter story of the end of his life and how he ended. So a reminder, Samson, we had a whole chapter dedicated to his parents when the angel of the Lord announced to them that he would be set apart from the womb as a Nazarene, as a Nazarite. So the Nazarene, back we saw in the law of God previously in, in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it was a particular vow that we would make, a male it would seem to consecrate themselves to the Lord. There'd be no alcohol or even grape juice. And then you wouldn't touch anything that's defiling like a dead body. And you wouldn't cut your hair. And then you'd complete your vow. You'd get the haircut and you'd make it an offering. So it was just a way of consecration in a special way to the Lord. Much like fasting, but kind of different. You know, like fasting, obviously there's different types of fast. But you would be somewhat limited. But you could take the Nazarite vow for quite some time. And as we come to Samson, we remember that he was a Nazarite. So the Lord pronounced that over his life before he's even born. And so special was his consecration that the angel came and announced his birth to the parents and confirmed it to the father. Much like the virgin birth of Jesus was announced to Mary and confirmed to Joseph in a dream. And also, there are only two Nazarenes in the entire Bible. Samson foreordained before he's even born to be a Nazarene, and Jesus. Because it says in the Gospel of Matthew, fulfilling Scripture, that he came out of Nazareth, thus he was called a Nazarene. So interestingly enough, Samson and Jesus are yoked together with the Nazarite identity, much like Barabbas and Jesus are yoked together on one being released and one going to the cross in his place. Very interesting. Jesus was the perfect Nazarene. He fulfilled the Nazarite vow perfectly. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So from Jesus, from the time of the Immaculate Conception to his virgin birth and his entire lifetime, never sinned. Never sinned. He was sinless. For with the shedding of blood for bulls and goats, there can be no remission of sins. But Christ died once for all for our sins. And the blood of God can take away the consequence of sin for the blood of humanity. Jesus perfectly fulfills the Nazarite vow. Samson failed miserably from start to finish. And we're going to see that contrast tonight. And I must say I'm very relieved that I don't have to get up here and talk about Samson for 35 minutes. But I get to talk about Jesus in contrast to Samson for 35 minutes. Just like you don't have to look in the mirror and see yourself or your righteousness on the day of the Lord, but you can look up and see Jesus and his righteousness for the day of the Lord. So as we look at Samson and his final chapter of his life, we're going to contrast him as a failed Nazarene in his final chapter to the perfect Nazarene in his final chapter in his life as a whole and what he did for us. And we're just going to praise the Lord when we leave this place tonight. That our identity doesn't have to be Samson. We already are Samson. We're Samson. We are Samson, just like we're Barabbas. Our identity is meant to be in Christ. And that's what we want to see tonight, our identity in Christ. So chapter 16, verse 1 says this. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot, a prostitute there. And he went into her. He had sexual relationship with her. 
where the Gazites were told, when the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning when it's daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them apart, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. And afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and with what you may be bound to afflict you. This is the main part of our text tonight. And again, another contrast with Jesus Samson would be betrayed for 1,100 pieces of silver, and Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. So again, they're yoked with unique actions that are very unique in the Bible to their persons. And we must note that as we think about Jesus during this Christmas season. Now, Samson, he had that consecration. He was called to deliver Israel. He was a warrior. He was a warrior. And whereas other judges led people in victory, he himself was a one-man wrecking crew. We've seen that with him. And we saw that when he had great success in combat, hand-to-hand combat, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he defeated the lion. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he defeated the 30 Philistines and killed them. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he defeated the 1,000 Philistines. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, came upon him, came upon him for combat and military physical deliverance. But again, a contrast with Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at the baptism. And after he came upon him, then he performed his miracles. Now we see other judges where the Spirit came upon them as, a, as delivers. But it doesn't say that for all of them. But here for Samson, we're told multiple times the Spirit of the Lord came upon him to deliver, but to deliver from military oppression. And when Jesus was told to deliver from military oppression, he said, I didn't come for this end. Uh, the, the lords of the world, they lord over one another. But the Son of Man came to serve and gives a life a ransom for many. And he came to deliver us not from military oppression, but the oppression of the devil, the fear of the grave, and this grip of sin. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon both of them, and we're told that. Again, contrasting. Both for deliverance. Both of them. Now, Samson had measures of success in his calling. He really does. And, you know, we're going to see his end and how he died and his death. He, you know, he died with the Philistines and bringing down the temple of Dagon, the fish god, and killed more in his final moment than all that he ever did in his life. We'll see that before we're done tonight. But as a young man, he was raised to do the right thing, but he chose not to do the right thing. And his problems really began with the lust of his eyes. Now, we're told in the Bible that we have a disposition towards sin. So if we're not seeking the Lord, we're just going to walk in the flesh. And we're going to walk after the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That's why it's so important to keep your heart with all diligence to seek the things of the Spirit. 
If we're seeking Jesus, we're going to think of others and be prone to put others first. But if we're just living for our flesh, it's all about us. We're going to be takers, not givers. Samson was a taker. Christ was a giver. And so Samson, he went to the Gentiles to take from them, and Jesus came to the Gentiles to give to us. Again, another contrast. Samson looked upon a harlot, lusted for her, and slept with her. Jesus looked upon harlots and forgave them and healed them and delivered them. What a contrast. The failed Nazarene, the perfect Nazarene. This one might help us politically. This one helps us eternally and spiritually. Never expect a politician to be more than a Samson. But you can always expect Jesus to be the Savior of the world. For his name means Savior. He's the Savior of the world. Samson looked upon women like most men do and lusted for women. And not only did he lust for women, he lusted for the forbidden women. He lusted for naughty women. Like you think like God had a, God had a plan for him for a good wife, a godly wife. A wife he could have had incredible sexual intimacy with. They enjoyed the journey with. The laughter, the heartache, the sorrows, all the journey gives. But he just, he, he went for forbidden fruit. See, the whole story of Samson is choosing from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life. The Nazarite vow had him consecrated for the tree of life. To obey God and do all the right things. But as he had all that super strength and power, he was much like a carnal Christian, like a Corinthian. He just, he had the blessing and the power, but he went after, Samson knew good and evil. It all began when he was in his early 20s, and he said to his parents when he saw the woman that was obviously, I would think, very attractive, the Philistine woman, she's the naughty girl, and she said, he came back to his parents and said, get me that woman for my wife. And they're like, are there not beautiful women in Israel? Like, why are you going to be unequally yoked? Why are you going to do this? Why can't you just marry someone that you went to school with at Calvary? Why you got to marry someone from... Cal Berkeley, whatever, you know, like, why? Like, you love the Lord, you're raised this way, and they, we laugh, but I, I can think of a famous Hollywood star that I know, he was raised Christian, homeschooled, all these beautiful things, became a very famous actor, and he ended up dating the woman that was a star, and his family's biblical worldview, Christ is king and all this, her family's pantheistic, all, all this stuff is completely opposite. And so they try to get together, like this, this couple's going to work together, live together. This is never going to work. And it never did work. And it was four years of an arduous, difficult relationship that crashed and burned, and he, the actor, still hasn't recovered from it. Samson went after forbidden fruit. And it began with, Mom and Dad, get me that woman. That's who I want to sleep with at night. Just because I want to. And I have all this power. And I can. And we saw the disaster that was two weeks ago. So now what do we get 20 years later in his life? He doesn't ask Mom and Dad about who to get the woman. He just, he just does what he wants to do. He crosses the border. I mentioned this Tuesday night. It'd be like if you live in El Paso and you're a gangbanger and all those uh, Ciudad Juarez, all the gangs on the other side, one of the most violent cities in the world. He just crossed over like, I'm going to sleep with this prostitute. He just crossed right over the Rio Grande. He's like, what? I do what I want. And all the gangbangers are waiting to get you when you're going to cross back over the United States at the border. You just cross over. He's like, what? 
You carry, the, you carry the gates of the border with you when you cross over. He's a very bad dude, and he can do what he wants. So if he wants to go sleep with a prostitute in a forbidden city, that's what he does. And no one's going to stop him, except his own passions will stop him. Because this story really isn't about Samson and Delilah. It's about Samson. Delilah's just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like the harlot, just like the Philistine woman. With adult children, I never blame anyone other than my own children. I hold them accountable for their decisions, as you older parents would understand. I've never made about who they're hanging out with. I made about who they are, how they're raised, and decisions they make when they self-determine their life in the secret and the quiet place. Because we all know it's our personal choices. So Samson looked and lusted, and since it wasn't curbed, when he crossed that line to get the Philistine wife, he set a pattern for his life to keep crossing the line, keep crossing the line, keep crossing the line. So what happens 20 years later in his 40s, he's like, he's going to cross the line. I'm going to cross the border. I'm going to go get this woman. I'm going to do what I want to do because no one tells Samson what he can't do. And when you think you're going to wait and lay for my life, I'm going to rip the city gates right off the camera on my shoulders, and I'm going to taunt you. I'm going to taunt you, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's exactly what he did. He, he, was, he was supernaturally empowered to be a military hand-to-hand combat deliverer. So the, the gift and calling and the Holy Spirit, it's all muddled in this crazy mess of who he was. But Jesus, when he crossed over to the Gentiles through his church, he sent us out the Great Commission is to give life. That's who the church is. We're the extension of the other Nazarene, Jesus, and we're reaching the ends of the earth. We're reaching the Gentiles not to take from them like Samson in the Philistine camp in Gaza, but to give to them the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the contrast of who the church is compared to the world and really politics, human government, because ours is a greater government. So... Where Samson failed with his eyes his entire lifetime and crossed the lines, crossed the lines, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he was tempted with the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and he was victorious where Samson failed. And his victory is our victory. That's really good news. Because you and I know our failures. But Jesus wants to teach us his victory. And we get to live this life of faith in him that we can know more of his victory against Satan in the wilderness than our failures of disobedience in the wilderness. The eyes, the first look's unavoidable, the second look is where it all goes wrong. We have to discipline ourselves to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. We have to learn from our failures and go forward. But ultimately, aren't you glad? That the hope of our salvation is not on our ability to control our eyes and what we look after and what we lust after, but it's based upon Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did with his eyes. Aren't you glad that when the Father sees us in our positional righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, he sees us like Jesus looking upon the heart with mercy and compassion as opposed to lusting after her? I am. And the application for the women, you know whatever it is for you. And however it is for men, however it works, it is. We're singing these beautiful songs about Christmas because Jesus is the Savior, not you, not me. It's not an excuse for licentiousness or sin, but it's a source of great comfort for the human experience. 
at 20, 40, 60, and 80, and even 100. We're saved by grace. And if we ever even thought for a moment we could save ourselves, (laughs) we just become like Samson in some form or another. But if our hope is in Christ, therein is our righteousness through faith and the positional righteousness through faith and the practical is getting better. And when I step into eternity and you step into eternity, we want to be much more identified with our whole life on the replay button with the life of Jesus the Nazarene as opposed to Samson the Nazarene. Just have to discipline ourselves and keep our eyes on Jesus. Samson, that was verse 1, he saw the harlot and he just did what he did. Now, in verse 6 it says, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. So here's where it got really tricky for Samson. He gave away his heart to the wrong person. You can't serve two masters, and he's supposed to love the Lord as a Nazarite. Above all other things, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You'll have no gods before me. And his heart was to belong to the Lord. But he gave his heart to, yet again, probably a very attractive, another evil woman. And, you know, love hurts. You younger people that don't know love yet, it, 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 can, it can hurt. I mean, it's, it can be very painful. If you love the wrong person, and it's painful when you love the right person because there's a growing process of less of you and more of Jesus for both of you in a marriage. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is much, well, it's not good. Samson loved the wrong thing, and he gave his heart to the wrong person. Not the one who would bless him, protect him, provide for him, and take care, care of him, Yahweh. But he gave his heart to Delilah, the one who could sexually please him, entice him, and betray him. He didn't guard his heart. We're told to keep the matters of the heart guarded. He did not guard his heart. And because he freely gave away his heart to various women at various times, he shouldn't have. It was just another thing to give his heart to Delilah and where he could just get away. He's a slippery fish that always gets away. He did not get away from Delilah, Delilah who serves the fish god Dagon. He, the irony of it, the slippery fish was ensnared by the fish god Dagon and mocked and humiliated in the temple of Dagon. Because all women know and all girls know in high school there's a slippery fish. That guy. He's the heartbreaker. There's songs that tell you to stay away from him and your parents tell you to stay away from him. He's a slippery fish. Uh, of, all, of love movies in every culture, there's no shortage of them. Indie films, K-dramas, Russian movies. There's that guy that breaks every girl's heart and there's that girl that burns every guy. And he's the guy that broke every heart but he ran into the girl that was going to betray his. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't betray our trust? We're told to trust him with all of our heart. Cast all of our cares upon him. He's our great high priest that ever intercedes for us. And in any time of struggle and heartache and the human experience, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find comfort and peace and all those things. All those things that a human being, the best human being might give you for in certain capacities, but will ultimately come short. Because we have a soul. And only Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can comfort our soul and carry our soul in the the deepest valleys of the human emotion, in the very bowels of our being. And that's how it's described in the Old Testament, who Jesus is and what he would do for us. As much as we could search ourselves, 
The Lord really knows us better than we know ourselves, obviously. That's what David had in mind in Psalm 139. And so our heart, we're told to guard it. And Samson gave his away. We have to be careful what we do with our heart and where we let it go. Because you see, you're tempted in your mind, but once your heart embraces it and you begin to take affection and love for the wrong things. The Bible talks about the the passing pleasure of sin for a season. And sin wouldn't be tempting if it wasn't tempting, but it is tempting. And alas, there's a way that seems right to a woman. There's a way that seems right to a man, but then thereby is death. And sin is conceived, and it's birth, and it brings forth death. James chapter 1. We have to be careful. We need to guard our hearts as we're looking toward a new year. We have to be careful what we love and what we give our affections to. We need to be very careful. But again, in contrasting, Samson, who gave away his heart freely and easily so often from harlots to... uh, Philistine women, and now to Delilah, another Philistine woman. He missed out all the good blessings that God had for him. He missed the wife God had for him. He missed the beauty of marriage God had for him. And this is what he gets. And he gives his heart to the wrong woman. And that's what we'll get too, if we freely give our heart away to the things that are contrary to the Lord and contrary to his calling in our life. But again comes Jesus and the gospel of grace. Because God gave his heart to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God has this incredible love for us. It's going to take all eternity in another dimension for us to even begin to wrap our cognitive capacities around it for all eternity. It can't even be revealed to us how glorious it is. Eyes not seen nor ear heard those great things that God has for us. So for all the love that we can know that God has for us and all the grace and mercy he shows us and that we would experience in our life, forgiveness and all these things, We're not even scratching the surface of how great is his love. Because the very word for love for God is agape, and it's a classic Greek word that was archaic. Like, in English, we don't say thee or thou. Those are archaic words, like, thou art my wife. You know, like, we don't talk like that. That's Shakespearean. That's an archaic word. The Holy Spirit took an archaic word for its time and put it on Jesus on the cross, and that becomes the standard of love for the entire human experience from here to eternity. So it's not the phileo love of friendship, it's, it, or the, uh, yeah, the phileo love of friendship, or the eros love of sexual intimacy. It's a higher love. It's a higher love. And it's the love that God's given to us. God has truly given his heart to us. And even when he would threaten destruction and wrath on certain people at certain times, it would grieve him so much because he even said to Ezekiel, my heart takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But his heart is to, to, recon, to reconcile us to himself. Even when Cain killed a- was before he killed Abel, God said, sin is at the door, but if you do what's right, we'll not be good with you. Like God loves humanity. You made the world and saw that it was good. And like when he made this universe, he made humanity the crown jewel in his image, in his glory. All the beauty of nature, and I love nature, none of the animal kingdom has the cognitive capacity to know God like we do. They just do what they do. But we are created in his image and we have the capacity to be like little gods and do all these things that God equipped us to do, but to reciprocate or return affection and faith and devotion to him or to reject it, thus self-determination 
and the tree of life to obey him or the tree of knowledge of good and evil to face the consequences of really knowing evil and what it means to not trust in the Lord and to know the dark side, if you will. But God loves us. By this we know love that Christ died for us when we're yet sinners. Christ gave us his heart. Christ on the cross is the ultimate act and definition of love in our universe, which is the only universe there is. And he's the Lord of it. And he holds it together. And he knows the stars by name. Trillions of galaxies. And he knows the hairs on your head. And he loves you. And he loves me. And there's no randomness in our life. Yesterday was the anniversary when I won the Pipeline Masters. December 17th, 1984, the greatest thing you can do in the sport of surfing. When I was with Tom Curran, the three-time world champion, my rival, we were together back in the 90s. And I said to him, you know, Tom, just be honest. Didn't you just wake up thinking it was awesome to be the best surfer in the world? Like, you're, like you're the best surfer, not even close. He goes, I was like, Tom, you won three world titles. And he said to me, dude, you won the Pipe Masters. It's all that matters. And God let me win it. And I posted yesterday, every December 17th, I cry. I cry because God allowed me to live my dream. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I moved to California at the age of 12. I saw the Pipe Masters on TV on Why Will the Sports in January 1973. For no reason at all, I turned to my mom at Jerry Mallory's house before a San Diego State football game we're going to, and I said, I am going to win that contest. That is my destiny in life. And I did. It's better than a gold medal for the sport of surfing. Like, like the sovereignty of it all. All that God did. All that happened. Like, why would this kid from Cleveland, Ohio, from a military family, just say, this is my life and destiny? Like, what would make me want to surf? What would, what would make me the, one of the best tube riders in the world? Why, when I went on a pipeline, I could see what no one else saw? I'm telling you, when I surfed pipeline, it's like I had the code. Like, when you're, like, I just had the code. It's like if you have their team's playbook, you know what they're going to do. I could see pipeline, this open ocean, 20-foot waves coming from 2,000, 3,000 miles away, Japan, Alaska, and they're coming like this, and I knew exactly where to be and what to do. Like, why? It's divine sovereignty, that's why. His hand was on my life before I was born. He said to Jeremiah, before, I've, before you're born, I formed you and knew you in the womb, and this is why I'm profoundly pro-life, by the way, because all lives matter, and all lives have a destiny and deserve an opportunity. And who are we ever to say one life has more value than another? But every December 17th, I'm reminded that my life has destiny. And I was entrusted with a great dream fulfilled. And I know God loves me. Not just because I won the Pipe Masters, but for the entire journey of my entire life. He loves me, and he loves you. Not like Samson loves a harlot or Delilah, but he gave his heart to you and me as the savior of the world with a love that goes above any other description of love and will take all of eternity to define and understand. You are called. You have destiny with the Lord. And it begins with understanding his love and receiving it and walking in it. And then you can look back over your life and see how he did all these things. You know, there's times I think about how many times I, I should have died and I didn't die. And there's things I remember, obviously, like when a guy pointed his gun in my head um, in a drug deal thing. And then I, when I was in the open ocean 
in 50-foot seas. And there's, there's some really obvious times I thought I would die, but there's other times, too, where there's like, oh, remember this? Remember this? Like, this was just a weird thing. It actually was a life-threatening thing, and you didn't know it. That man was a very evil man, and he was going to do very evil things to you, and I made him stop that car and get you out of the car. I protected you. God loves us, and he loves the world. And he's already established the love, and that's why the natural response is to return that love. So we don't want to love others like Samson loves others. We want to love others like Jesus loves others because he gave his heart to us, and he wants us to love others with that same heart. The love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who has been freely given to us, Romans 5.5. 5. That's the love that we're meant to have. And look, the other thing about Samson, the third thing. So he, he, his eyes, his heart, his, what he loved, Jesus, his eyes, his love, what it means to us, our identity in Samson, our identity in Christ. And then this third thing in verse 6, he says, Please, Delilah said to him, please tell me where your strength lies, and what shall he be bound with to afflict you? When someone tells you they want to afflict you and wreck your life, they don't always say that up front, but they give you, they, they present that to you and how they might be. I'm talking to the young people mostly. But I can tell you the devil wants to bind us and afflict us. And Dagon, the fish god, who's a demonic entity, definitely wanted to bind Samson and stop him from his ministry and his calling, his deliverance and his purposes in God. Especially as a Nazarite. Hey, I'll tell you, you know, a failed Nazarite in the book of Judges is better than no Nazarite. But alas, when your lust and your eyes are out of control and you give your heart away to the wrong people and the wrong things, you will be bound. He whose sin is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So if you want to live like Samson, even in grace, you'll be a slave to sin. But if you want to live like Jesus, you'll be free. And in the end, Samson's unbridled lust, crossing the line, crossing the line, crossing the line with the eyes, crossing the line with the actions, where he's hanging out, what he's doing, touching dead bodies, hanging out in vineyards, crossing the line, crossing the line, crossing the line, and then finally his heart was given away. He crossed the line, and that really was the beginning of his end. Because where the heart goes, all the consequences of life follow, for good or for evil. And she said to him, I'm here to bind and afflict you. And there are people, the devil, the grave itself, and sin is to bind and afflict. Sin is bondage. Total bondage. And here he even knew the one he was choosing over life. He's choosing the knowledge of good and evil. He's, but this is, when you've crossed so many lines, you think, like, well, I can get away with this one, too. We think like that. God actually says in the Bible that when you seem to get away with evil, don't think that he's evil. Because he's not altogether like us at all. He's just merciful. And so, ultimately, Samson, he had the spirit. 
but he would become bound and he would be afflicted. And the rest of the story is she sets him up three times to get him to betray the secret of his vow. And he, he, he just blows her out the first couple times in the rest of the chapter. But the third time he gets closer, he talks about his hair and he's just weakening and weakening and weakening and weakening. And then finally he says, I have enough of it. In fact, it goes on to say later on in verse 15, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? But see, his heart already was with her. You've mocked me these three times and have not told me your great strength where it lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart. See, the heart was already there. And he said to her, no razor has ever come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and I'll be like other men. And women and men and young ladies and young men know this. In Jesus' name, we are never meant to be like other men. We are in the world, but not of the world. For what fellowship has Christ with Belial, and what fellowship has light with darkness? We're not meant to be like other men. He told her his heart, and that was it. Really, his, his fate was sealed when she said, I'm here to put you in bondage. But he was already locked in, like, I remember the first Bible study I ever heard uh, from Don McClure in 1988 at Calvary Chapel Vista. I never forgot it. But he talked about sin being like a roller coaster. And it was that passage from James I quoted earlier, James chapter 1, where it's conceived and it matures and it brings forth death. And he said, sin is like a roller coaster ride you can't get off of. You know, it locks you in. And it doesn't let you off till you're off. Like six flags or something. It's, it's there. And you're not off till it's off. And you younger people, sooner or later, you don't want to go on a roller coaster, by the way. I remember I used to love like the big gnarly roller coasters. I went on a little easy peasy one at SeaWorld with Jennifer about five years ago. I was, I was promising God halfway through it, I'll never go on it again. I'll never, never, never. I'll never tempt you like this again. I haven't been on a roller coaster since and I have no intention to be on a roller coaster. You know, the fun ones kind of, Ooh. I was like, Ooh. You know? yeah. and when I got off, I was like, I am never, ever getting on another roller coaster. I took four Tylenol. <laughs> and I've, I've kept that Nazarite vow. <laughs> no roller coasters from here to eternity. <laughs> but, but sin can be like that, you know? So he's already locked in. So when he does this, it's just, it's just he told all of his heart because he already had his heart. And that was it. She called the Philistine lords. They came. It says in verse 20 that he had not known that the Lord had departed from him. And he was given over to bondage. He was completely defeated. And again, I want to contrast him and Jesus here. It says he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. So because of his sin and the delusion and deception of it, he, he was, you know, she said that third point that you may be bound and afflicted, verse 6. Wasn't Jesus bound and afflicted for us? Yeah. Samson was bound and afflicted for his sins. When we're bound and afflicted, it's for our sins. Jesus was bound and afflicted for our sins because God made him who knew no sin become sin for us, that we will become the righteousness of God. And then it says here in verse 20 that he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The Lord departed from Samson. That's such a heavy verse right there. But you know, the father departed from the son too, didn't he? My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? The father left the son 
because the son took the consequences from our sin and sin is separation from God and hell is eternity separated from God. So this Nazarite, the failed one, was separated. The spirit, the Lord departed from him because of his sin. Jesus, our Nazarite, the Lord separated from him for our sin in our place. So that we never have to know that feeling. When David sinned in Psalm 51, what did he say? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because he sensed that. Because in another psalm he said, when I did not repent of my sins, my bones were drying up within me. And that sense of like, oh, where is the Lord? And God will allow you a dry season when you're solid with the Lord. But you can bring on a self-inflicted dry season by not being walking with the Lord and making bad decisions. Unfortunately, I think most of us know what that's like. Maybe some more so than others. And then finally, the last thing we see. So Samson was, you know, he was, he went into bondage. We get bondage for our sin, but Jesus was bound for our sin. And Jesus, the Lord, the Father departed from him because that was hell. And he took it for us. So praise the Lord. Merry Christmas, WG. And then finally, we see in verse 28, Samson's brokenness. So we've seen Samson in his eyes, Jesus in his eyes. We've seen Samson in his love, Jesus in his love. And we've seen Samson and his bondage and Jesus in his bondage. And now finally, we see Samson's brokenness. Because in verse 28, in all that we've read about Samson, we've never read about him calling on the Lord. But from the, the, the place of brokenness. So after they captured him, they poked out his eyes and became a grinder. He was grinding and... They brought him into the temple of Dagon during a great sacrifice, the fish god, and they were praising their god because it's always a spiritual battle, right? It's always something spiritual, really. And so they're praising Dagon, all this stuff's going on, and then they bring in Samson to mock him, and there's 3,000 men, all these important people and women, and then Samson cries out to the Lord in verse 28, and he says, O Lord, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, this day once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And then he would say in verse 30, Lord, let me die with the Philistines. And that's exactly what happened. But he chose to live with the Philistines, so it only makes sense he would die with the Philistines. Live with the Philistines, die with the Philistines. Live with godly people, maybe die with godly people. Who knows? It's, to me, it's an interesting idiom of words, if you will. Uh, idiom of words. It's, it's ironic. That he, had, he was so immersed and yoked with the Philistines that in death he had to die with them to fulfill his greatest victory of the purpose of his life. But look at this, isn't this interesting? Remember me, I pray. Oh, Lord, remember me, I pray. Who says that? The thief on the cross. What's the thief on the cross? Lord, remember me. And here's Samson saying, when he's finally broken, a life of rebellion, a consecration never fulfilled to the fullest, he's broken, and like the thief on the cross, he's like, I got nothing. I got nothing i got nothing but a failed life. Oh, Lord, remember me. And what does Samson say here to God? Oh, Lord, remember me, I pray. And God did. And God gave him his power back. So even as the Lord had departed from him, now the Lord restores power. And he gives him one final moment of greatness in his calling. In fact, his greatest moment in his calling. For we're told that he killed, it says that, and he pushed with all of his might, 
in the temple, verse 30, and the temple fell on the Lord's, all the people were there. So the dead that he killed in his death were more than he killed in his life. After he was a broken man, after he had found that mercy with pure grace, after he realized how much he needed the Lord, and after he finally called on the Lord, he had his greatest moment with the Lord. It's amazing. And yet we're reminded again at the end of another year, for every one of us here, from our successes to our failures, from our mountaintops to our valleys, this to me is the most comforting element of this entire story. Because where there's brokenness, there is blessings. And we can rise from the ashes of our failures. And no matter how far we've gone, and no matter how deep our failures, God's grace can meet us there and take us forward from those things. Having been with my sister last week, and I talk about my sister a lot, I'm allowed to. She encourages me to tell her story whenever, however I can. And yesterday when I was looking for a Pipe Masters photo and some old magazines, and I have all this stuff, and I, I found a picture of me and my sister in a Japanese surf magazine when my sister's like maybe, when I was like her hero, you know, I was like maybe 19, California kid, and she was like six years younger than me, so like maybe 13. And she looks so cute. She's so innocent. She's Barbie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post it on Instagram. I'm going to do an Instagram post for my sister with this photo. And um, we've always been very close because she looks just like me and she surfed and all that kind of stuff. But uh, when I was in Florida last week and I was with my sister, there's sometimes I just look at her and I start crying because I'm so amazed and happy for what she let God do in her life that she was like Samson, just her eyes were poked out. She's grinding. She's living on the streets with a grocery cart. She's nowhere in life. She's out of her mind. And yet, when she came to the end of herself, truly broken, and went to rehab and completed rehab, and rebuilt her life, the two years of DUI school, clearing all the debts, and as she just rebuilt her life from the ashes, from her brokenness, and to see her as like, you know, the salesperson of the month at Home Depot in this beautiful, cute home in Vero Beach with her dog and her cat and this big jungle lot next door that God's given her to so she can expand or build another rental property or whatever. God is good. And God is a blessing God. And from brokenness will always come blessings. So even the failed Nazarite gets a second chance. We get the second chances. But we have to be broken. And then we get that chance. And then God can show us his grace. So no matter how we've lived 2021, no matter who we are tonight, or whatever got us here and what our life looks like, if we look to Jesus Christ and we say, oh Lord, remember me, I pray. Let your grace and mercy be mine. Let it be that which restores me. Let your hope be my hope. Let your countenance be my joy. Because God is in the business of revival, renewal, restoration, and redemption. And he redeems by the blood of his son, the blood of the lamb. And that's the Christmas story.